And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I'm sure that there came a time when the President of the United States was watching TV, as he does from time to time, when he said to himself, who the hell is Michael Avenatti? And the whole country is kind of asking that same question, because since March, uh, this uh, trial lawyer from California has been a ubiquitous presence on uh, our uh, television screens as he presses the case for Stormy Daniels, the porn star who alleges she had a relationship with Donald Trump. So I sat down last night with Michael Avenatti in New York uh, to ask him about his life, how he got to this point, and where he thinks this story is going. Michael Avenatti, it's great to be with you. I I would have to say that you may be more overexposed at this point than your client, and she's a porno star. So <laughs> I think I have to, and, and the whole country's asking, where the hell did this guy come from? Who is this guy? So let's take some time and, uh, and, and explore that story. Uh, well, t- I, I think there's no question I'm exposed. I don't know that I'm overexposed yet, <laughs> yet. But I, but I may be walking a very. We could put you over the edge. top right here, right here. This could do it, depending <laughs> on how many people listen. Um, but uh, tell me uh, about your your family. You you grew up uh, first in Colorado, and then St. Louis, right? Yeah, I was actually born in uh, Northern California, outside of uh, or in Sacramento. Lived there for a couple of years, moved to Salt Lake City, lived in Salt Lake for about four, five years, then Colorado Springs for about five years, uh, right outside the Air Force Academy. And then uh, my dad worked for Anheuser-Busch this entire time, so we were then transferred to the mothership in St. Louis. Uh, what was I, he doing for them? Uh, he was in. Uh, he actually was a liaison between uh, the distributorships and the brewery. He started with the company in 1958. Uh, and ultimately was with them for 31 years. Uh, so he was a company man, uh, did not go to college. I was the first member of my family to graduate college. Uh, but I went to high school in St. Louis, and, and when I was growing up in St. Louis, of course, I became a huge Cardinals fan. Huge Cardinal We're going to get to that. You, I'm, I'm thinking as you tell me this, being the Anheuser-Busch guy in Utah let me must tell you, have been a tough beat. Actually, let me tell you something, David. They They sell... A hell of a lot of beer in Utah. Evidently, there's, you know, if you ask how many people are drinking beer in Utah, evidently there's like eight guys and they're each drinking, you know, tractor trailer fulls of Anheuser-Busch. <laughs> well, they do have, they had at the time, I, I, I was, I, I uh, worked for the mayor of Salt Lake City in the 90s, D.D. Corradini, and they had private drinking clubs, I think, uh, at the time. Your folk, uh, and, and obviously at some point your family came over from, uh, from Italy. My, my, my great-grandfather, uh, Augustino, immigrated from uh, a small town outside of Torino in northern Italy called Boscanato uh, and came to the United States, immigrated uh, here in 1904 uh, and uh, came through Ellis Island, actually, uh, and ultimately worked uh, on the railroad uh, as the railroad moved west. 
and saved up enough money to send for the rest of his family, and, and that's how the Avenatti's came to the United States. And did he end up in California as a result? They, they ended up uh, residing in, uh, settling in Los Angeles, actually. Mm-hmm. So, And what about your mom's side? Uh, my mother grew up in, uh, in Dallas, Texas, uh, actually, and uh, attended SMU for a few years. Uh, and in fact, the day that uh, the president was shot in Dallas, uh, my mother, my grandmother on my mother's side, uh, had a beauty salon that was about two blocks from Dealey Plaza. No kidding. Uh, and they were they were at that salon the day that uh, Kennedy was killed. So you you uh, okay? So now we're now let's get to St. Louis. Yeah, you became a big Cardinals fan, huh? I did. We uh, we moved there in 1982, and uh, the house that my parents purchased was not done being completed yet. So we. We shacked up in the Marriott Hotel across from the old Bush Stadium in downtown, uh, and we moved there in August. And it was the the um, you know the heat of the pennant race yeah. that year in 1982, and so. We would stay at that hotel, and all the visiting teams would come in, uh, and I would spend my days. Autograph seekers' dream. Exactly, exactly. I would spend my days in the lobby of the hotel with a baseball, trying to get uh, guys like Mike Schmidt and and uh, Sammy Sosa and other other players. And plainly, you being the shy and retiring personality that you are, probably had a hard time getting that. I I did. You know, I actually have a very funny story about Pete Rose, if you want to hear it. Yeah. Uh, So so uh, Pete Rose comes to town. Uh, and I'm down in the lobby of the hotel, and I'm in the it's it's the morning, and I'm in the coffee shop or the restaurant of the hotel, uh, and I'm 12 years of age at this point, and uh, I'm sitting there, you know, having something to eat, and Pete walks in with this very attractive woman, and he sits down, and at some point I get up and I walk over to the table and I introduce myself and I ask him for an autograph, and he's kind enough, he gives me an autograph, and um, uh, the woman that he's with is very nice to me and talks with me a little bit and. That was that. And so later on in the day, I see her again in the lobby of the hotel, and she walks over to me. And I think at the time she was about 30. Her name was Susan. I forget her last name. She was about 30 years old. You remember of age. that, huh? Uh, well, I remember it because, I mean, she was about, you know, probably late 20s, early 30s. You know, this beautiful model. I think she was from Cincinnati. So she runs into me in the lobby, and she invites me to the game, to go to, go to the game, right? So I say, yeah, sure, absolutely. I'll go to the game. So I end up going with her to the game. We sit behind the dugout. Um, during the game and ultimately she gets me in the locker room after the game and so I struck up this friendship with her uh, that lasted about a year and a half and every time they would come to town I would go to the games and like hang out with her and get to go in the locker room with Pete Rose which was pretty cool when you're 12 13 years of age do you uh, and were you uh, I joke about you uh, your pugnaciousness but were you always like this I mean, were you always sort of a kind of in-your-face kind of guy? And, and where, that, where does that come from? You know, I, I don't think that I've always been that way. Um, you know, I think that uh, I think I learned probably, you know, in my adolescent years, that, you know, to beat to my own drum. I mean, I wasn't terribly popular in high school. I wasn't terribly unpopular in high school. Do you have siblings? Um, uh, I had a half-brother and half-sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Um, you know, I think I probably learned during those formative years, you know, not to let anybody take my lunch money. And that's kind of carried on uh, into my professional career. I think that's probably where it comes from. And uh, you, I read somewhere, I've, I've read conflicting accounts about your, the end of your dad's tenure at Anheuser-Busch. One was that he retired after 31 years. Mm-hmm. 
The other was that he was fired or 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 his job was phased out or whatever yeah. after 31 years. Both could be true. Well, yeah, he actually, you know, to be clear, I mean, he was he was forced out of the company in a very unceremonious um, situation after 31 years of the company. And, you know, David, that had a, a tremendous impact on our family. It wasn't planned. Um, I'll never forget the day as long as I live. It was it was uh, 1989, uh, and it had a huge impact on on my parents and on me and our family. And I think that you know it really kind of set the tone for me relating to a lot of things that I was going to do in my professional career and things that I was not going to do in my professional career. You know, I, I decided at that point I was never going to be a company man. Um, and I was never going to put my faith... Because you didn't want to give anybody else that kind of power over your life. Exactly. That's exactly right. You're, you're absolutely right. I did not want to give someone else that amount of power. Um, I thought I saw the sacrifice that my dad had made over 31 years, moved his family countless times. How did he react to that? Oh, he was devastated. I mean, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget that day. It was a, it was a um, very, very difficult day. Um, and, you know, it took him a you long time. You were like time. A, probably a senior in high school or that's, something. That's correct. It was right before I was supposed to go to college, and it was completely unplanned. And, uh, you know, it was devastating for him because his entire life had been, you know, Anheuser-Busch, and, and uh, you know, the guy worked his ass off. And what I mean, was the reason they gave him, do you know? Well, it was just, you know, they just downsized the, the position. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just a typical, you know, corporate cutback, and, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Americans go through that, you know, year in and year out. So um, I, I, it really gave me a lot of perspective uh, on life, and I've never, I've never lost track of that. I... Um uh, I noticed in some of the notes that I saw that you that we know some people in common. Uh, Joyce Abusi, who was a legend in Missouri politics, or Dick as they would say there, Missouri politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an aide to Dick Gephardt, uh, and you know, just a superior organizer. You worked for a guy named Buzz Westfall, who was a legendary county executive. There was this all while you were still in high school, or was this during college? It was. Uh, it was after high school. The first two years, I attended St. Louis University in uh, St. Louis, uh, and uh, Joyce Abusi gave me uh, gave me my first political job, uh, doing some work for Gephardt. And uh, how'd you hook up? And and Tom Tomer went through uh, through Buzz Westfall. I'm trying to remember exactly how. Um, I hooked up with them, uh, and it's escaping me as I'm thinking about it right now. But uh, and then ultimately, uh, I came to know Rahm Emanuel because Rahm uh, Rahm's group came in to do some opposition research on behalf of uh, Buzz Westfall uh, and did some work on behalf of Gephardt. And Rahm was partnered up then with Ace Smith mm-hmm. uh, in who, a group called the the Research Group out of Chicago. Right. Uh, innocent sounding kind of anodyne uh, and of course that was before the days of the internet so you know it was a lot of gumshoot type work yeah um obviously i've known ram for a long time and i was and i knew those guys when they started uh started that business ace we should point out went on to other things in california politics he's a major advisor to jerry brown and others out there so uh just wrote a book, by the way. Did you know this about uh, Satchel Paige's time in the Dominican Republic and his relationship with Tru- Trujillo, the I did not know there. that. Yeah, just, I did not know that. Just came out. Hoping right. to talk to him about that. But uh, so uh, 
And and did did they then recruit you for uh, as a researcher? Now that I'm recalling, what happened was they needed a liaison on the ground when they came in to do their work to collect records. Yeah, or? to collect records mm-hmm. and work work with them, et cetera. And and uh, so I was assigned to to work with them uh, in connection with the work they were doing. And so um, through that, you know, I came to know them and. Um, they then asked if I would assist them on some other campaigns they had. Uh, so I ended up assisting on. So you must have been pretty good at 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 uh, sleuthing records. Well, either sleuthing records or I fooled them. I don't know, one of the two. But yes. uh, you know, I ultimately went on to to work with uh, work with them or others on you know over 150 campaigns in 42 states mm-hmm. and traveled around. Did that for a long time. Joe Sinsheimer is another guy who's a researcher from that time. You told me, and I'm sure you're right, that you were that there were campaigns that I was involved in. Yes, 100. percent That that you were. Yeah. Uh, you were doing yeah. research. You and, you and I conversed a couple times on a, on a on a few campaigns. You 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 don't remember it. I I remember it vaguely, but I mean it was you know it was a long time ago. Did I have the foresight ago. to say someday I want to do a podcast uh, with you? So keep me in mind. You know I, I don't even think we knew what the internet was back <laughs> yeah. then. No, I, don't think, I don't think we did. I think if we if had we, we did, known that, that your job would have been a lot easier. Yeah, and we wouldn't be sitting here right now had we been able to predict <laughs> that. Uh, and and so you switched schools and you went to the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, I transferred to the University of Pennsylvania and and uh, went out to the University of Pennsylvania and um, you know had a good time out there. Not a great time, but a good time. I mean, certainly a good school. Why'd you switch? Well, because I mean, I always uh, I had decided to go to St. Louis University initially because of uh, just a financial issue because of the downsizing of my father. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we just couldn't afford it. Uh, and ultimately, uh, I put myself through. Um, my last two years of college at Penn by doing the by working doing research. Yeah, by 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 working and so you, you know, traveling around and 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 working my ass off. So. Uh huh. Hey, you know, I should ask you, um, what did you learn from doing opposition research, and and are there campaigns that stick out in your mind where research actually made the difference? Yeah, there were. I mean, there were a number of campaigns where it made the uh, made a, a big difference, and I've been trying to think. It, back to you know so long ago um uh you know when i left that world i really kind of left it behind uh, because i was pretty burnt out over it ultimately uh i mean over 150 campaigns in yeah. two states alive. i did 150 but it was over a longer period of time so um there were certainly i mean i worked on some pretty big campaigns uh you know uh, mostly winners but some some losers mm-hmm. i mean i remember working on lynn yakel's uh, year of the woman, yeah. year, year of the woman campaign against Arlen Specter right after the confirmation hearing uh, for Clarence Thomas. Yeah, uh, and so a lot of the issues, you know, it's interesting because history repeats itself. But a lot of the issues that were that surrounded that year of the woman um, campaign cycle are a lot of the issues that now are arising. You know, recent in in recent history. Yeah, uh, a lot of the same issues, a lot of the same themes. Um, but, uh, you know, it was a good experience. I mean, what did I learn? I mean, I learned a lot about campaigns. I learned a lot about messaging. I learned a lot about media strategy. I learned a lot about, you know, issues. And that- you probably learned a lot about media because one of the things about opposition research is that issues arise that you know this, these issues are going to be – this is going to be big. This this could have an impact on a campaign. Yeah. No, there's there's no doubt. And, and you always have to – if you're going to be good at doing that, you need to understand 
how that piece of information will ultimately translate into a media strategy. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of things you could you could find or discover uh, discover that might be might be salacious or might be interesting, but if it doesn't translate or it can't be used in connection with a media strategy, it's it's worthless. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's you know probably one of the big takeaways that I learned in connection with that. And you continued to do this even as you were in law school. Yeah, I think the last I was trying to think. I did a lot of work down in Louisiana um, in connection with a bunch of statewide races. You know, ultimately what happened, of course, was... No opposition research uh, necessary down there, right? <laughs> everything's pristine, everything's... Oh, of course, Louisiana. Yeah. I mean, you know, everything. Um, the uh, But, uh, you know, and what happened ultimately was, I mean, Rom left and he went to work as Clinton's finance right. director. And then um, his group kind of splintered off into a whole host of other smaller entities. And I went and worked with... Um, uh, I worked with with Mike Plant for a while. I mean, yes, Mike yeah, Plant. I know all these guys. And then, and then Joe Sensheimer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did most of my work with Joe down in North Carolina. Yeah. And I have to say, because I think that the implication of opposition research can be um, viewed ne- uh, in, in, a, in a way that casts a dark cloud. These guys that you mentioned, uh, guys like Joe and Mike, and uh, they... They were highly professional researchers, incredibly ethical. Because no they understood, and, and they also understood that if you go out there with something that is false, or it used to be that if you go out there with something that's false, that there could be that there would be real uh, recriminations. For yeah, you. Could, I mean, you could lose a ele- lose an election or worse in connection with that. I mean, and let's remember. I mean, you know the the the. Uh, Probably the the birth of opposition research as an entity, of course, is is founded in the 1988 presidential election involving Michael Dukakis and right. and a and a convict by the name of Willie Horton. Yeah. Well, I don't. I I you're, I'm older than you. I can tell you that that was uh, that was not the birth of it. Well, there, maybe it, that it, wasn't it, the it birth. Went, it went back in your consciousness. It was the birth of it. But it honestly, I think uh, people have been doing opposition research since the beginning. Uh, of our elections, you know, there I always. But talk that was about the big. In, that was in, a big in, one, though. In one of the races between uh, between John Quincy Adams and uh, Andrew Jackson, the Adamsites put out a pamphlet, and it was called the uh, a catalog of the youthful indiscretions of uh, General Jackson from ages thirteen to sixty four. So you know, and well, see, it was that's, just that's a why, compendium. That's, that's why this podcast is so good. Because you always learn something. About it. <laughs> uh, so you you worked research by day, and you went to law school at George Washington at night. That, that's correct. For um, I did that for I think about the first year or year and a half, as I recall, and then um, and then I went and I clerked uh, as a law clerk at um, two law firms, uh, Anderson Kill and Olick. And uh, one year, and then King and Spalding, uh, which is uh, which is an Atlanta-based firm um, that had offices right across from the old executive office building. Mm-hmm. So uh, I worked as a law clerk there for a while. Uh huh. And uh, you you worked. I know he's been quoted widely about you lately with Jonathan Turley, who's a well-known constitutional scholar, and he said that you worked uh, with him on issues related to FISA. Yeah, and this was before you know. This was before FISA was was FISA, if you will. I mean, now you know, now FISA gets a lot of play. A lot of people talk about FISA, but back then, not a lot of people were talking about FISA. I mean, it was um, at all. 
but I spent a lot of time actually working with Professor Professor Trilly on some constitutional issues relating to some FISA warrants that had been executed. It's interesting because uh, FISA really came into being as a result of Watergate and uh, the abuse of the intelligence services by the Nixon administration. Uh, Edward Levy, who was the attorney general who had been the president of the University of Chicago, uh, implemented, he, he devised and implemented, you know, with Congress, worked with Congress to do these FISA regula- regulations. And now in this era, they're coming back uh, and they're back in the, in the, uh, do you have a sense of, I know this is not in your lane, but since this was an area of interest of yours, you must have contemplated, um, uh, this controversy over the FISA warrants. And yeah, I've got, a, I've got a considerable problem, David, with the whole concept of these FISA warrants. I mean, I had a considerable problem with it back in uh, the mid-'90s when I started looking at this. I mean, it's, it's, it runs counter, in my view, to some fundamental constitutional principles that this country is founded on. Um, and so, you know, I don't like how secretive the process is. You know, at the time in the in the mid-90s when I started working on this, I think there was only one instance in the history of the FISA court where they had even questioned uh, basically one of the warrants, let alone denied one. At that time, not a single FISA warrant request, not one, had been denied. There had been, a, as I recall, one or two instances, I think it was one, where they had asked for some more information before they would issue the FISA warrant out of thousands of requests. And that struck me as not as not being uh, kosher, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I think, the, I think the FISA court and how that is set up um, is of significant concern. I mean, I understand the competing balance that's necessary, competing interests that's necessary in order to balance it out. I mean, obviously, we're talking about huge issues of national security right. that can result in people, yeah. thousands of people losing their lives. But I think the pendulum needs to swing back a little bit. So are you sympathetic to the argument of some of uh, the president's supporters that some of his some of the people associated with his campaign were unfairly targeted? You know, I don't know that I'm sympathetic to that. I mean, I mean, here's the pro- problem. The problem from my perspective is, is that the process in general, I have a problem with. Now, the fact that it happened to swoop in or, or apply to the president or, or certain of his associates, uh, you know, that that's not political, though. That's just part of the of the process. And, and the process is fundamentally flawed, in my view. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Michael Avenatti. So first in your class in law school, uh, you were working on the side, uh, not on the side, you were working full time and doing law school for much of that time and you finished first in your class. Did you have a sense of what it is that you wanted to do with the law? Because a lot of people don't. Yeah, I took uh, George Washington University has a great trial ad program, and I had participated in that, and it, it was um, I really enjoyed that and had excelled in it. Uh, you know, David, I can't speak enough about George Washington University and some of the professors that I had, uh, you know, Professor Robinson, Professor Turley. I mean, it was just a great fit. You know, all the tumblers fell into place for me at that uh, at that law school. I don't know that it would have been true somewhere else. But it was a great experience for me, far better than college. Uh, and uh, I, I excelled there because it, it felt like home for me. Uh, and it was a Let's tremendous... Face it, you like to argue, man. It was a tremendous experience. You like to argue. 
I mean, occasionally, think, yes, you know, yes. But uh, but that trial advocacy that that suited your personality. It 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 did, but it was you know it was an absolute great fit, and I look back at those years with incredible memories. And you went out to California. That's right. I uh, you know I decided that I wanted to take one bar exam and one bar exam only, and I wanted to take a bar exam in a state with a huge. Uh, legal community uh, and a lot of business and uh, with California being as big as it is and with me having family from my father's side in Los Angeles I thought that'd be a good move and you went to O'Melveny and Myers which is a very big and prestigious yes it's a you know it's a white shoe firm it's uh, multinational with uh, I don't know how many thousands of lawyers they have now but uh, offices all over the world uh, and uh, I went there initially. It was a it was a good experience. Good poured a good foundation there. You you work with Dan Petroselli, who uh, was became well known nationally when he uh, pressed the case for the Goldman family against O.J. Simpson and won a civil a civil judgment against uh, O.J. That was before you arrived there. Correct. Dan had uh, just left his other firm and had come to O'Melveny kind of as the trial guy. Uh, and, uh, you know, served as a great mentor to me, uh, one of the smartest lawyers I've ever met in my life, no question, and very, very talented, uh, from, uh, from Brooklyn, as I recall, initially, uh, or originally. And, um, you know, I learned a lot from him on a, a lot of aspects on how to conduct yourself as a trial attorney. And what were the, what some of the big cases, your first big case, I know you, uh, when you were there, you you represented uh, uh, the 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 key guys in the Eagles against they they had some internecine legal sparring going on over. Uh, yeah, there was a big there was a big lawsuit uh, brought by Don Felder, one of the band members who had been kicked out of the band uh, in connection with the Hell Freezes Over uh, tour because the Eagles had disbanded and they said they were never going to get back together until they wouldn't get back together until Hell Freezes Over and they got back together and they went out on the tour. But and, not with him. But not with him. They left him behind, and there was a, a huge piece of litigation. So I ended up working closely with um, Irving Azoff, their manager, and uh, Don Henley and Glenn Fry and the Eagles in connection with that case, and also worked on a number of other you know celebrity type cases um, closely with Dan. But you came to you wanted to do something slightly different, and you went to another firm. Tell me about that. Well, I, I did. Kind of talked your way into another firm, didn't you? Yeah, I, I did. I um, I didn't want to work on the defense side uh, uh, the rest of my life. I, I knew I always wanted to be on the plaintiff side, and um, I had a friend of mine who was an attorney who um, had worked with a guy by the name of Bruce Broilette at Green Broilette and Wheeler out of Santa Monica on a case, and he was singing my praises to Bruce, and I was trying to get into the firm, and uh, you know, the clock was moving rather slowly. And so I found out that Bruce was going to be hosting a cocktail reception, uh, an annual cocktail reception in Vegas uh, for plaintiff's attorneys in the Los Angeles area. And so I decided to, to, you know, drive out to Vegas and buttonhole Bruce at this cocktail reception. And um, lo and behold, I found him and talked to him and uh, convinced him that night to, you know, to allow me he to said, come in. Just let me get back to my party. I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll hire yeah. you. Just yeah, let just me stop get talking. Back to my just party. stop talking, please. Right. And, so. and 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 that opened the door to some other high profile thing. For example, suing Paris Hilton. Yeah. So we represented a, a woman by the name of Zeta Graff who got in this dispute uh, with Paris Hilton, and Paris Hilton had claimed that uh, she had, uh, or or Zeta claimed that Paris had defamed her, and so I had occasion to 
to uh, work on that case. Uh, and we resolved that case amicably, ultimately, on the EVA trial. So that was one of the cases. And then, of course, another case that I worked on was uh, re relating, on the apprentice. To the, relating to the apprentice. And we represented a guy who... Claimed, had the original idea. Who claimed that he had the original idea, and he actually had the original idea. I mean, you know, most people, a lot of people in L.A. come up with the idea of Star Wars years later. Yes. Everybody everybody comes out of the woodwork and thinks, that, in fact, someday someone's going to claim that they had the idea of your podcast here, just so you know. Yes. I'm sure. Yeah, uh, I'll, be, but, I'll be calling on you. You'll yeah. probably be the one who files the suit. No, I, I promise you I won't file that suit. <laughs> Uh, but uh, but no, this guy legitimately came up with the idea of the pr apprentice and and pitched it to one of Mark Burnett's right hand guys, uh, and we alleged that they that they took it and Trump was actually deposed in it's connection. Called with CEO that. was the idea, right? That's that right. was the show. That's right. Uh, and I got to tell you, I'm I'm very I'm very impressed with your research skills. Yes, well, we've there. got you know uh, like you know I, I I didn't I learned a few things along the way too. I guess too. so. I, had I people see that. who can do this yes. stuff, you know. So, uh, it's a good thing was, I'm retired. <laughs> was Trump? Well, let's see how this thing goes that you're involved in. Now you may be back in opposition. <laughs> I might. I don't know. Good point. Um, do you? Uh, was Trump a actually a defendant in that? Was he named in the? As I recall, he was not named because he was one of the executive producers of The Apprentice. Correct. I recall that he was deposed in that case, and I also recall that at one point during the deposition, I did not take the deposition. Unfortunately, yeah. that would have been great. Good uh, practice, huh? Well, yeah. Um, but um, I, maybe I was waiting my turn for this for this <laughs> turn at the wheel. But I recall though that at one point during the deposition in that case, that he was asked about a PowerPoint presentation and. And uh, the, the question was about a PowerPoint, and, and he asked for a clarifying, he asked a clarifying question, namely, what's a PowerPoint? He didn't know what PowerPoint was. I, I do remember that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you guys settled in that case, is that right? That's correct. That case uh, also settled on the EVA trial. Uh-huh. And with any admissions at all? Uh, no admissions, but that's not unusual in connection with the settlement. I can't really get into the details of the settlement. KPMG, you became like the biggest thorn in their side, this global auditing and accounting uh, firm. How did that come about? We filed a case uh, that we ultimately ended up taking a trial in New Jersey uh, on behalf of some clients that had lost a lot of money on a, on a business transaction they had done. They bought a Targus. company. Well, well, yeah, there was a couple one that was Castar, but Targus, uh, the CFO, had embezzled forty-one million dollars on KPMG's watch, and uh, they were the auditors. They were they were the auditors, and they had failed to find it, and that was a pretty, uh, pretty spirited case. Uh, you know, we took over one hundred twenty-five days of depositions all over the world in connection with that case, and uh, you know, ultimately that case resolved favorably. Now you went off on your own. That's right. So in two thousand. Um, in 2007, uh, I left Greenboy Latin Wheeler, and we formed our own firm, uh, which is something I'd always wanted to do. And I'd had, you know, a lot of success at Greenboy Latin. And, and again, Bruce Broilet also served as a tremendous mentor to me. He's a tremendous trial lawyer. I was really blessed by having Petricelli and Broilet, um, you know, both teach me quite a bit. And uh, so I took some of my bonuses from some of those cases, and we formed a firm in 2000. Um, seven, um, which at the time was Egan O'Malley and Avenatti, and now is uh, uh, Egan Avenatti. And that's where the that's where the uh, a lot of these KPMG cases were. You mentioned this yep. uh, Cast Art Industries case. 
they're a gift manufacturer, and the claim of of of, uh, of KPMG was that it wasn't anything that they did that caused that that all these businesses that were in the same business were out were going out of business on their own. And what did you do? Um, I'm I'm continually impressed with your research skills. I well, gotta tell you, you. yeah, I, I appreciate. No, it. I am so. Um, yeah, so we were in the middle of that trial, and, and our claim was that uh, basically that our clients, these three guys, had bought this company and got in the door and found out it was a bucket of rocks and there was all this fraud. And uh, lo and behold, KPMG said, uh, well, the company would have gone out of business anyways because the three competitors had gone out of business. And so they had an expert take the stand one day in the middle of trial uh, who reminded me quite a bit of Tina Fey, actually, <laughs> uh, in her presentation. Uh, I'll never forget that. And, uh, I mean, she just crushed us the first day. They put her up, and she just killed us, absolutely killed us. And I was I was uh, licking my wounds that night, early in the, early the next morning, thinking, you know, what are we going to do with this woman? And so the next day in trial, um, I took out my cell phone in open court, and uh, I, I basically challenged her by claiming these companies were out of business, and we called the companies, and they actually picked up. Each each one of them, all three of them, picked up in open court. And the judge allowed me to get away with it, and you know, it was a, it was a little dicey because there's some judges that would hold you immediately in contempt and have to, you know but have the, the judge deputy. appreciated the uh, the theater of it. He did. I'll I'll never <laughs> I'll never. Uh, <laughs> what what are our language restrictions on this project? There are none. It's all right. Well, I'll never forget this because when I got done with it. Um, he called me, uh, he said, uh, he looked at the defense and he said, do you mind if I have Mr. Avenatti approach the bench by himself? And they said no. And I walked up to the bench and um, he said, let me tell you something. I've been doing this over 35 years, criminal and civil, and I've never seen a better fucking courtroom stunt than that in my entire life. <laughs> so I liked it. Do you, what, was, what was that movie? Was it Anatomy of a Murder with Jimmy Stewart? And George C. Scott and George C. Jimmy Stewart's a small town lawyer, and George C. Scott's the prosecutor. Right, and they're in, they're cross examining the witness. Uh, George C. Scott is, and he's standing between the witness and Jimmy Stewart. And Jimmy Stewart says, "You know, Your Honor, he's blocking my view of the witness." And, and George C. Scott says, "Well, I'm sorry if I'm keeping him from coaching his witness." And Jimmy Stewart says, "That's the shabbiest courtroom trick I've ever seen." And George C. Scott says. You haven't lived. <laughs> so I thought of that when you uh, told me that story. There were some. There were. There. There is some unpleasantness in this story. You had some acrimonious breakups with your, at least one of your partners uh, in your law firm. Uh, that law firm. There was a bankruptcy proceeding attached. To, what was the story there? Well, I mean, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, ultimately that was dismissed. And uh, you know, look, I mean, here, here's the issue. Anybody that has lived a life and has operated at a high level is going to have issues and there's going to be disputes along the way and there's going to be acrimony. You know, I think it was Jack Welch that said, uh, behold the monkey. The, cl- the higher he climbs in the tree, and the, the more, more his ass, ass, the more yeah. his ass is exposed, right? right? Well, you know that's true, and I mean, I think I think that's one of the issues, and you know, as it relates to how we pick political candidates. By the way, I mean, do we want people that have been experienced, that that have you know right. been through the trenches, or not? Right. Because if we want lily white candidates, and if those are the, only the people that we're going to elect, we're not going to get the best. I'll tell you that. What about this? Um, uh, what about this? situation with this coffee business that you 
bought into in Seattle, which is another kind of contentious deal. Um, uh, I now have to run through my notes here, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's been you know there's been ebbs and flows relating to that. I mean, you know, I, I purchased uh, purchased an interest in that business, and and you know, we turned it around to a significant degree, and then I exited the business and uh, have ultimately served as kind of outside counsel to the company. And, you know, the company's had its challenges along the way. Patrick Dempsey was your partner uh, of television fame, uh, Gray's uh, Anatomy fame. And uh, and he sued you and said that you misled him and you took money out of that business. Yeah, I think that case was pending a day, as I recall, maybe two days. But you settled it, right? Yeah, the case was resolved, and you know we moved on. I'm I'm restricted in what I I'd love to be able to talk about that, but I'm restricted in what I can say. But you know, again, it was kind of a blip on the radar screen. Yeah, well, but a high profile blip on the radar screen. You like that? Don't you? you like operating on these high wires? So well, I mean, you know what, you know what, you're, you're, uh, I like, I like, Turley said that about you, that you were an adrenaline freak. Yeah, I, um, you know, I like living life, David, you know, there's no dress rehearsals in life, right? So, I mean, if you have a shot, you know, why not take it? I mean, life is meant to be lived. And I'm not a guy that likes to sit back and wonder, you know, what if or what could have been or should have been. But but this adrenaline, th- what he was saying was that's one of the reasons why you were uh, so attracted to litigation, uh, and, uh, and, and trial work was I that like, I like, high you like stakes. The, the pressures of it. Yeah. I like high stakes and I like high reward and, and, uh, you know, high risk. And, uh, so much so that you also race cars. Well, in my spare time of which I don't have a lot of lately, um, I've, I've got this small other matter that we're working on right now, but, um, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. Yeah. No, but that's, that's certainly a passion. Uh, for me, how long could, have you been doing that? I've been doing that off and on for you know the better part of uh, probably twenty five years now. Um, and uh, and how do you learn? I mean, how do you do? You, did, were you just? I started racing go karts when I was younger, and then you know ultimately graduated and started racing some open wheel cars, and uh, ultimately and got into twenty four hours of Le Mans. Yeah, 24 hours of Le Mans, twenty four hours of Daytona, twelve hours of Sebring, and um, you know again that's my passion. So. But, but ever, there's a lot of lessons. There's a lot of lessons from racing that you can carry forward into life, and certainly like in watch out for the litigation. wall. Well, like you know, you need to be able to close. You need to be able to close out things that are around you, um, and uh, you know, really concentrate on the task at hand. Otherwise, bad things happen. Um, you know, you need to drive a, a, a race corner by corner. Uh, you know, it's it's fine to be looking ahead, but you also have to be concentrating on what's immediately in front of you. Um, and so there's a lot of the lessons that I've learned in racing that I carry forward into my life. So let's talk about this little matter that you referenced before. How is it that you came to represent uh, Stormy Daniels? Well, unfortunately, I'm precluded from getting into details about how I came to represent her. But suffice it to say that that um, you know she found me. I didn't. You didn't and, seek her out. No, I did not seek her out. Not not in the least bit. Um, and you know, nor did some third party bring her to me, which I think some people have speculated on. Uh, and uh, you know, I I had my 
I had a, a healthy dose, David, of skepticism relating to Stormy Daniels when I first heard about this. Why? This was not something. Well, because. I mean, I'd heard about the Make America Horny Again tour. and uh, you know, I hadn't heard was, about the Make America Horny Again yeah, tour. Uh-huh. And, uh, and she, um, well, I had read about it at uh-huh. that time, and, and I, it was public. Uh, and you know, I knew that she had, she was an adult film star and I haven't represented any adult film stars. That's just not what I do. I mean, I've had a, a real legal career with real cases of, of significant magnitude and I've got a reputation that I've built over the years and I was skeptical about lending that reputation to somebody in the industry, quite honestly. And what changed your thinking on that? I met her and she blew every conception that I had, uh, misconception that I had out of the water. I mean, everything that I came to that meeting with was blown out of that meeting in the first 15 to 20 minutes. I mean, this is an incredibly intelligent uh, woman, one of the most self-aware people I've ever met in my life. Forget about women, men, clients, regardless. Incredibly self-aware, very, very perceptive. She's just a real human being. And in today's society, that's unusual. And how do you, and how do you how did you process or how did she explain um, her interest in reopening a matter that she apparently closed by uh, accepting this this hundred thirty thousand dollars? Well, I want to be careful about how I answer this because I don't want to get into communication. I don't want you to be careful. Had. No, I know you don't, but I got to be careful because that's my <laughs> okay. job. But here, right. here's no, but here's what I will say. Okay, I mean, I think she's been pretty clear that. That um, you know, one of the things that she's been concerned about is is that 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 the entire truth be laid bare for people to hear. So and to speak. That, everything's yeah, so. a double entendre when you talk about these. Yeah, matters, in this case, yeah. everything is yes. a double entendre. And uh, you know, I think that she took exception to the conduct, especially of Michael Cohen and some of the. In things what that way? Well, explain to me what it was that triggered her, because presumably, if she were quiet about this if she were hushed by the hush money then there wouldn't have been uh, an issue right michael cohen wasn't seeking her out well actually so uh, i mean a couple but i may be, i may be wrong i'm no, just no no yeah let, let me let me clarify a couple yeah. things so the wall street journal runs this piece i think it was in february of this year and instead of not commenting out commenting on it uh, or just letting it be and who knows maybe they don't even run the piece Michael Cohen responds to the Wall Street Journal and comes out and makes some statements that he was precluded from making. and um, Suggesting that it was all fictitious. Right, but but he turned her world upside down by making those public statements. And so all of a sudden, you know, she's living outside of Dallas, not exactly a hotbed of um, left-wing activism uh, and in a very conservative place. And now all of a sudden, all of this attention is brought to her, which she did not ask for, did not seek out, did not make any statements to to cause it to come, well, f- come I mean, about. And this, is, uh, this is in February. you uh, got to understand. I understand. The yeah. All I was going to say is just parenthetically, if, you, if you're if you on the Make America Horny tour, then get uh, drawing attention to yourself isn't a, 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 a great concern, right? No, 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 but, but he made the statements before this. Oh, I see, yeah. So this is this is this is early on in February. She's, there is no tour. There is mm-hmm. no. Uh, there's no attention. There's nothing. She's mm-hmm. just living her life with her little girl and her husband. Still doing her around. work though. At, in the in still the doing her work. Industry. Still doing her work. But nobody is talking about any relationship that she had with Donald mm-hmm. Trump or anything of that nature. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, out of the blue, Michael Cohen decides to to run his mouth and disclose details about this uh, agreement. And up until. 
in fact, uh, you know, late February, she's of the belief that this agreement has been signed by Donald Trump and it's all executed and it's all above board, et cetera, up until that time. And uh, you don't like Michael Cohen. It, 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 I mean, that seems pretty apparent. You've been dogging him uh, consistently on, on television. Look, let me, let me, let me say this. Um, I think from everything I've heard, I think Michael Cohen is a devoted father, and I respect him enormously for that. Um, uh, so we'll leave that at that. Um, I think he is a beyond terrible lawyer. There's no question about that. Well, if you listen to the president, he may not be a lawyer, much of a lawyer at all. Well, correct. I mean, I think, look, I think the guy's a thug. I think he uses threats of intimidation. I've, and I've seen a lot of attorneys like this over my career. And any guy that has to tell you how tough he is all the time is not a tough guy. That's It's just that simple, okay? And any guy that refers to himself as Ray Donovan um, is a joke, in my opinion. And so, you know, the issue here, David, is is that the President of the United States, uh, a guy that should have known better, trusted um, a guy that wasn't very smart and wasn't very tough with some of his innermost secrets. And those chickens are now going to come home to roost. I mean, you, you know, nothing lasts forever. These things only, sooner or later, things catch up to people. And you know that, you've seen it in your lifetime, and I've seen it in my lifetime. And I firmly believe that this is the Achilles heel to the President. And what do you, first of all, I guess I should ask, um, you, you hear his supporters saying, the president's supporters, nobody thought he was a choir boy. Everybody knew that, his, you know, he was, uh, uh, that, that his mores weren't necessarily the mores of, of, of most Americans and so on, and that he lived the kind of life of a, the, the, the star life that he described in the access Hollywood tape and yet he got elected what should should what what should the level of public interest be in his sexual this isn't David, David it's not about the sex it's not about how many times they had sex or how they had sex or how long the sex lasts or any of the details of the sex in my opinion it's not about that it's about lying to the American people and covering it up I mean you know the cover-up is always worse than the crime and this case is all about the cover-up. It's about what Michael Cohen did. It's about what the president knew and when he knew it and what he did to cover it up in connection with Michael Cohen, in connection with this agreement and the $130,000. And anybody that actually believes that Michael Cohen took out a home equity loan to pay $130,000 to a porn star that he thought was lying on behalf of a billionaire in the final two weeks of the campaign and never told the billionaire never sought reimbursement, but didn't even tell the billionaire so that he would have a chip at the table. I mean, if I, if I did, first of all, I would never do this. It's so ludicrous, but let's assume that I did. I would certainly tell the guy, Hey, you know what? I spotted you 130. I took care of that little porn star incident. You know, just so you know, you owe me just, you know, just put that shit on the board. So what do you, uh, and what do you think, uh, do you think crimes were committed here? Oh, I think I think there's no question that crimes were committed. Um, I think that Michael Cohen is going to be indicted. You know, I, I said 90 But for this, I mean, there are other issues that have been raised relative to Michael Cohen. Specifically in the matter in which you're involved, do you believe that 
a crime was committed, and do you believe Michael Cohen will be indicted for that crime? I do. I think ultimately Michael Cohen will be indicted for for uh, committing crimes in connection with campaign finance law, uh, as it relates to the hundred thirty thousand dollars and the timing of that payment and specific acts carried out. Uh, with an eye towards not having to report that payment. And I think there may ultimately be money laundering charges that are brought in connection with that $130,000 payment. Absolutely, I believe that. Money, money laundering meaning? Meaning, you know, money laundering is a very broad Com- term, but right. remaining, relating to the transfer of the money for the payment, whether it be um, among accounts that Michael Cohen had. You know, I think he also likely committed bank fraud. I think he lied to the bank when he opened up the account from which to to send the $130,000. In fact, there's no question in my mind that he lied to the bank. He could be charged with bank fraud. You know, as you know, federal prosecutors have a lot of charging discretion. They can bring things or not bring things, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why a pardon may not work in this situation, but we can get to that later maybe. But well, Why is that? So, so explain that. Well, because uh, a, a president's pardon power only extends to federal crimes. It's not going to protect somebody from a potential conviction for state crimes. Mm-hmm. And the problem, David, is is the sequencing of this. You know, it's normally someone is charged and they're convicted, and then the president pardons them, but no one really knew along the, the way that the president was going to pardon them. So they made decisions relating to charging decisions and how they went about the case in one way. Well, now everybody and their brother knows that the president may pardon Cohen. Uh, and so, so you're thinking that there are some charges that may be left by federal prosecutors to the state prosecutors in New York. There's no, there's no doubt. Or because Cali- you can't, under New York law, unless it's changed, and they're talking about changing it, you can't prosecute someone in state court for crimes that they, they've been pardoned for or they've been uh, indicted for in federal court. Co- correct. And, and you know, the California AG also may have jurisdiction over certain aspects of this. I don't want to get into too many details, but the California AG may also have a shot at this. And so, look, I, I cannot believe that federal prosecutors, in fact, I know federal pre- prosecutors are not going to charge him with anything and everything they could possibly charge him with. I think they're going to leave windows open for potential state prosecution of Michael Cohen. And the president's not going to be able to do anything about that. And uh, you are you seem determined to depose the president in this case. Do you believe that you're going to get the opportunity to do that? Yeah, I want to be clear about this. I mean, we're determined, my client's determined, I'm determined to get to the truth of exactly what happened here. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. All the facts and all the evidence on both sides. And then we're going to let the American people decide for themselves whether they've been lied to, whether there's been a cover-up, and really what's, what's going on here. I think a deposition of the president is going to be necessary for that. I'm confident that at some point we're going to get a chance to depose the president. And I will tell you that I do not think the president will hold up well under cross-examination for me in a deposition. I just don't. In, and, in fact, based on his Fox and Friends uh, uh, recent interview last President's week, interview, lengthy, free-form interview on Fox and Friends the other day, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I know he's not going to hold up. I mean, if the Secret Service would allow it, we'd send a car for him every morning to go to Fox and Friends. <laughs> Yes, I, I tweeted that day in, in keeping with the, our times. You know, you communicate that way that uh, maybe his lawyers could get an injunction to keep him from appearing on Fox and Friends. You, you can be undisciplined in politics. Um, you know, you may be able to get away with lying to the American people. You don't want to be undisciplined in litigation. That doesn't end well. I heard you say a couple of things uh, on TV uh, this morning as we speak. Uh, one is about this other case that Michael Cohen was involved in, Elliot Brody, 
uh, and $1.6 million to a former play, Playboy playmate. Uh, who had an abortion. Who, right. And you said on this program that you thought that he might not have actually been the person involved. And you left heavy the inference that, although you resisted being drawn into saying it, you left heavy the inference that the, that the real uh, person involved might be the president. Well, I mean, look, that's the inference that people are drawing. I'm not saying that. Well, that's the infer- inference you want to leave, man. No, Let's be- no, no. I mean, I'm going to push back a little bit on this, David. I mean, here's what I'm going to say. There, there's considerable reason to believe that it was not Mr. Brody. Okay. And, what and what are I, those reasons? Well, unfortunately, I can't get into that right now. But I will tell you that there is considerable reason. Here, I, here's what I will tell you. Okay. Tell me something, man. I'm, I, I know. I'm, I'm on the edge of my chair here. Give it to you right okay. now. All right. Prior to this alleged transaction, whereby it was agreed that the 1.6 million dollars was going to be paid, Michael Cohen had zero involvement with Mr. Brody who is supposedly a sophisticated businessman who's a billionaire, okay? Now, um, the sophisticated guys that I know with a lot of money, they have their own legal counsel and their own advisors. They generally don't trust something of this sensitive nature, of this magnitude in their lives, to a, an attorney out of New York when they live in California that they've never met before and never had any prior representation by and no involvement with, okay? So I'll give you that fact. And all right, well, don't you think that's a pretty interesting no, fact? Uh, no, it's an it's an interesting fact. Okay, it's an interesting fact, but it's. Uh, I, I mean, if somebody came to me and said, "Look, you know, I'm going to represent some you know ex girlfriend of yours that you got pregnant that had an abortion." By the way, for the record, there is no such person. But if 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 somebody did that, and uh, who would I reach out to? I'd reach out to one of my closest advisors, one of my closest attorneys. I want to reach out to some guy in New York that I never had any involvement with. Let me ask you, do you, do you intend to probe this with the president if you get a chance to depose him? I don't him? want to get into the details of what I'm going to ask the president or not ask the president about. But, you know, I, I, I think that this is certainly going to be an area that ultimately we're going to get to the bottom of, whether it be the president or somebody else. The other thing that you pointed out today in your own tweet was that uh, the National Enquirer has now turned on Michael Cohen. Um, what do you make of that? Well, I think it's very clear. I mean, the, the president is being told by his closest advisors, and you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out, that Michael Cohen's in serious trouble. I've been saying this for weeks, and I'm no rocket scientist, and that he's ultimately going to trade up and, and trade information on whoever he has that's above him. And there's only really one guy, and that's the president. And he's going to sing like a canary. He's going to flip. He's going to roll over, whatever term you want to use. Uh, there's no question he knows where a lot of bodies are buried. He has a lot of information about a lot of shady shit. There's no question about that. Not uh, according to the pre- according to the president the other day. They he, he barely knew the guy. He was he he just did, he did some minor matters for him, a small fraction of his law work. That all the problems that he has are relative to his own business. Well, the good news is I was in federal court the other day and I counted, I think they seized um, 16 cell phones from Michael Cohen's hotel, office, 
and uh, and residents, 16 cell phones, including two Blackberries. I mean, it's been a long time since I had a Blackberry. Yeah. So, you know, it appears that this guy is, is like an evidence hoarder, which is, you know, an absolute wet dream for federal prosecutors and me uh, in that he saved all this information. He's probably got all these these cell phones that he saved. It's going to have all the text messages, all the emails. Now we hear about, you know, potential audio recordings that he saved. I mean, this could be a treasure trove of information. There's nothing better than an audio recording other than a video recording. How, uh, how quickly do you think now uh, there's been a special master appointed former judge to review the materials and decide if any of it should be covered by uh, lawyer client privilege or whether it's all, uh, fodder for the prosecutors um how long do you think that process will take you know I because don't, you just mentioned that there's an awful lot of material i you know i don't know how long it's going to take but i said i think about a week ago that i thought it was going to be within 90 days that michael cohen was going to be indicted you know i'm not stupid at least not most of the time i think i gave myself a considerable amount of runway on that um, it wouldn't surprise me if it happened a lot sooner than that. Uh, there may be a subsequent what's called a superseding indictment where they add additional charges as it relates to information to come out of those raids. But um, Michael Cohen's in a lot of trouble, and uh, there's no question in my mind that he's going to roll over the president. You've, you bumped into him. You told me last time I saw you, you bumped into him in town. What was that like? Yeah, we uh, we bumped into each other, and uh, I was sitting in a restaurant, uh, and uh, he actually came over to me and tapped me on the shoulder and, and uh, introduced himself. It was you know a rather awkward moment, um, but um, probably didn't need an introduction. But. No, he, no, he didn't. He uh, and he kind of he didn't know what to do after we we met. He was trying to figure out like whether he should stay or go, or I was distracted by something else, and um, it was it was rather uh, awkward. And ultimately, he just walked away. Yeah, ultimately, he walked away. I mean, you know, look. Do you think he was this, trying to menace you? Yeah, I mean, maybe. I kind of. I didn't even get up from the table. I think he was expecting me to get up from the table. I wasn't about to get up from the table. I was busy doing other things. So, uh, just let, let me uh, ask you about your client and what is it that she? What is it that she wants? What is the end state that she wants out of this? You're obviously in your never-ending quest for truth having a great time right now uh and you're i've David, said i'm before, just doing I, my job i i'm sort of in and, and and a lot of people are watching are enjoying watching the shoe on the other foot and the president being treated to some of the uh, treatment that use of media and so on um uh, in the ways that you've used it but but your client what is it that she wants what well, does she you, want to get out of this i'll tell you exactly what she wants first of all she wants the nda ruled null and void she's prepared to give the hundred thirty thousand dollars back she does not want to operate under the 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 restrictions of the nda she doesn't want to be threatened with uh by by mr trump or mr cohen that they're going to take you does know, she want to sell her story no, I don't think ultimately she wants to sell her story. I mean, she might, but I'll tell you exactly what she wants. You ask me what she wants. She wants to be out from underneath the NDA. She can speak freely, and they can speak freely. They can say whatever they want to say. And they have a much bigger bigger audience than she does, quite honestly. The president has the biggest audience in the world. So she wants to be out from underneath the NDA. She wants Michael Cohen to admit that his prior statements regarding her not being trustworthy or suggesting she's not telling the truth are completely bogus, that in fact she is telling the truth. Um, she wants the president now to admit that his his statements of about a week or two ago relating to the fact that 
that the sketch was a con and that the guy that threatened her was would never happened. She's going to want that to be Wasn't retracted. that bad, but, but, but that the sketch itself, you, you released a sketch. She said mm-hmm. she was accosted in a, in a parking lot she in, was threatened. in Vegas and threatened uh, by someone who... Not, not. I'm not the first to note that the guy looked exactly like Tom Brady. We know it wasn't. Yeah, you know him. he copped to it. Actually, he called. He <laughs> called me yesterday and admitted it. Uh, but um, what, what are people to make of that? I mean, you, you know, there's a lot of what you're doing, Michael, that has a kind of tabloid feel to it. Yeah, I don't. Uh, no, no, I don't. No, actually, you, you I don't. Go agree. on television and reveal this photo and. Well, well, look. I mean, I, I don't think I don't think we're engaged in you know tie up tabloid tabloid type uh, reveals or journalism. I mean, I just don't. I mean, the fact of the matter is, there's a significant amount of interest in this case, and if you're going to release a sketch and you actually want something to come of the sketch, then you release it in a very high profile manner on a show that generates millions of people. Uh, and you've said that you've gotten leads. No, we've got yeah, we've gotten a ton of leads, absolutely. And I mean, we're working on those leads, and we're spending a lot of time working on those leads. But, but um, you know, look, are we using the media to our advantage in the connection with this case? Absolutely. This isn't your average case. This case has a number of different aspects to it, and I think we're playing each she, of them pretty well. And you point out that she herself is sort of cashing in a little bit by touring and. And um, yeah, and I don't her. think I've pointed that out. I mean, I think others well, have you, tried to others have tried to make a, a, a lot out of that. But I got to tell you, David, I mean, you know, her security costs are through the roof at this point. I mean, there's a lot of crazy. I mean, you know this. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of crazy people out there, and uh, you know, we. So take she's a, doing that in order to raise money for her security. No, no, she she had a lot of these these dates booked for months. I mean, these things are booked months in advance and she's, she's adamant that she needs to fulfill a lot of these dates that were on the calendar, you know, months ago, long before, uh, you know, long before March when we filed the case, she's very concerned about keeping her commitments to these, to these clubs. It's just the way she's built. And how's the story end? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I don't think this, I think the story is going to end very well for Stormy Daniels. Um, I think uh, there's no question about that. I think the story is not going to end well for Michael Cohen at all, uh, ultimately. And what about for Donald Trump? I don't think the story is going to end well for Donald Trump. I mean, I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. I do not think he serves out his term. Now, um, I think I is think there he, something here that would cause him not to? I I think so. Ab- absolutely, I think so. I think that depending on how things go. But again, I want to I want to hedge a little bit because, you know, a lot of this can be politicized. We don't know what what ultimately prosecutors will decide to do or not do, and you know, they may be a little hesitant to pursue certain things against a sitting president. They may be precluded from doing so. A lot of things can happen, but I do not think he will serve out his first term. Now, he may couch it in, in a different, you know, he may resign for health reasons or family reasons. Do you think he'll reasons. leave? I think he's going to leave. I don't think he's going to be- Because of being impeached or convicted zero, is, is right. close to zero. I don't think that's going to happen, okay? I think he's going to resign. And uh, what about- how does the story end for Michael Avenatti? You know, I don't, I don't know, David. I think it's going to end one of two ways. And I've been saying this consistently from the get-go. Even before I filed the case, I told people close to me because I thought long and hard before I filed this case because I understood the ramifications that it could have on, on me personally. Um, it's going to either end incredibly well beyond my expectations or it's going to end very, very badly where you're going to need like DNA evidence, it's going to be like a light plane crash. One of the two. That's what I think is going to yeah. happen. Or and you'll be back in the 
opposition research bill. Well, or worse. Uh-huh. Well, we will see. We will. One thing I'm sure of is you'll keep us informed. <laughs> I'm going to do my best. <laughs> Michael Avenatti, good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.